kiss me on the lips and said goodbye. He grabbed his gun and rode off in disguise. Badman followed right behind. Welcome to episode four of Dissecting Love. Today, conflict. Have you ever felt that maybe you and your partner have wanted different things from each other? Well, biologists have a good reason to think that every single relationship is laced with conflict, no matter how harmonious it might seem. And that's not just every human relationship, that's every pairing that ever happened in the history of sex. We're going to be talking about sexual conflict, an area of biology that tells us why males and females will almost always want different things out of each other. We'll be looking at how that conflict influences our behavior and also how it influences a bunch of other processes in the body that we don't have quite so much control over. Now, when we think about males and females, there are some very specific differences that come to mind. Males, by definition, are the sex that produces sperm, whereas females, by definition, produce eggs. This very basic difference between the sexes causes a whole lot of trouble, and to understand why, we need to look at the difference in the opportunities to have offspring between the sexes. Let's start at the beginning. Sperm are really cheap to produce. So while it might take a male a little while to find a female who's willing to sleep with him, once he does, he can usually make a baby pretty quickly and with very few resources needed on his part. That means that a male's reproductive rate is usually controlled by his access to females. The more females he has access to, the more babies he's able to have. When we look at females, on the other hand, eggs are really expensive to produce We often find with females that the rate at which they make babies is not related to their access to males. It's limited by their ability to produce eggs. Now, of course, both sexes want to pass on their genes. Babies are the currency of evolution, so everybody's trying to have lots of babies. But males can do it cheaply and quickly by handing over a bunch of sperm to a really big number of females. Females, on the other hand, need to make a greater investment per offspring, so they need to be a bit smarter about the way they're investing. And this basic difference between the sexes is really exaggerated in mammals, because in mammals, females have to go through pregnancy and lactation, breastfeeding, for every single offspring they produce. So when we're talking mammals, after a male and female have had sex, the male can theoretically walk away. But for a female, that's where all the hard work begins. Let's take humans as an example. At their absolute fastest, women can have one baby every nine months. And that's really going at lightning speed because that's not taking into account the time it takes to breastfeed a baby. Think about how many children a man can have in nine months. With unlimited access to women, men can have babies every 20 minutes if they wanted to. That might be exaggerating a little bit. What I'm trying to get at with all this is that we've often tended to think about sex as a cooperative event, males and females coming together to work together and make babies, but really this whole interaction is fraught with conflict because males generally try to reproduce at a rate that's much, much faster than what is optimal for females. 
This difference in the optimal mating rate has led males and females to evolve all kinds of adaptations that manipulate each other into doing what they want. Now you might be starting to notice that we've already talked about sexual conflict in a bunch of the other episodes of Dissecting Love. Once you know what you're looking for, you can see how sexual conflict is wrapped up in the hormones that men deliver to women via seminal proteins, or in the ways that women have evolved to conceal estrus to encourage men to stick around and look after offspring that may or may not be their own. One really common battleground for sexual conflict in humans is the argument over family size. How many kids do you want? And a bunch of researchers have looked at this in societies all over the world. There are some studies in African populations, for example, showing that men often want a larger family than women. And that result is predictable when you take into account the theory behind sexual conflict that we've just talked about. But, you know, those studies tend to be carried out in populations where families are used to having lots of kids. And so the difference in what men and women want may be For example, the difference between five or six kids on average for women and seven or eight kids on average for men. Surely in a developed country like Australia, where we're having so few kids, you wouldn't see that variation between men and women, right? Well, I'm a scientist. I couldn't help but want to go test this out for myself. I decided to do what all good scientists do and experiment on my friends. Okay, Andy, ideal family size? Two. Two. Easy. How many kids would you like to have eventually, if at all, one day? Two. Two. Three. Three? Yeah, no, not now. Not now, no, no, at some point. Ideally now, none. Which may be less than I have. Three. I'm going to go three? three as well. Yeah. Probably just two. Zero. Zero? I don't want kids. Am I on the record? Yes, you're on the record. Ideal family size, two, boy and a girl. If I could only have one and then not be a spoiled little shit, then I'd have one. Ideally, four. Really? (laughs) Probably not going to happen, but I was... Ideally, four kids? I was in a family of four kids and I liked that. I like the idea of two, though, a pigeon pair. (laughs) So one of each, but I feel like unless you genetically engineer that, it's a little bit difficult to... (laughs) to control but two two I wouldn't want one seven (laughs) really hang on do I have to look after them okay so maybe this wasn't the most controlled scientific experiment in the history of science and it probably wasn't the best replicated either I only had about 20 participants that I asked But even with those 20 participants, I was able to see a really clear difference between men and women in their ideal family size. And that's even excluding the answer of seven kids that I got from one friend who I think might have been having me on a bit. All in all, the women I interviewed tended to want between one and two children, whereas the men that I interviewed tended to want between two and three children each. Now this question of ideal family size gets even more interesting when you start to factor in the in-laws, because a man's relatives will share genetic interests with his offspring, but they shouldn't tend to care so much about the health of his partner. A woman's relatives, on the other hand, will care very much about her health, and less so about her offspring's health. Now these dynamics have been shown to have real effects on the outcomes of these power struggles within families. 
Families that live with or very close to a woman's relatives will have fewer kids on average than families who live very close to a man's relatives. Now in evolution, it's not just important to have lots of kids. It's also important to make sure that your kids are going to have kids and that their kids are likely to have kids. So you want really good quality kids. Since males invest fewer resources in each individual mating opportunity, and they're more likely to go and have sex with lots of different females. It's in their interest to make sure each female they mate with invests as much as she can in their offspring, even if that comes at a cost to her health or her future reproductive opportunities. Now, females also want to have top quality offspring, but they don't want that quality to come at a cost to themselves. So here we're seeing a different type of sexual conflict, and that's the tug of war between parents in how much to invest in their kids. Now, if you are a male trying to squeeze the most juice out of your partner, what part of the baby-making process would you target? That's right, pregnancy. Pregnancy is the jackpot for males for two reasons. The first reason, mum can't back out of pregnancy without losing the offspring altogether. She can't just decide, I'm going to be half-assed pregnant today. She has to commit fully. The second reason pregnancy is an awesome target is because males have a secret weapon to help them out, the placenta. The placenta is like an undercover spy in the woman's body because it's an organ inside her that has direct access to her bloodstream, but only half of its genes belong to the woman. The other half belong to the man. Because, of course, the placenta is tissue that comes from the developing baby. Before I started learning about sexual conflict, I can't say that I gave the placenta much thought at all. But when I did think about it, I thought about it as a tool that helped out in this romantic, loving exchange that's happening between mum and fetus. And all I really knew about it was that it helped out by passing energy and oxygen to the fetus from the mother's blood. It turns out that mammals vary quite a bit in how invasive the placenta is, how much access it has to the mother's bloodstream. And humans have the most invasive type of placenta, where the placenta actually remodels mum's arteries when the embryo implants in the uterus. And that allows the cells of the fetus to literally bathe in the mother's blood. And that's not the way it is for everyone. Lots of other mammals have a few layers of cells that block the path between the mum's blood and the fetus, and that allows the mum to have a little bit more control over the exchange of nutrients. Since human babies have direct access to mum's blood, not only does she have no control over how much energy they're getting, but they can also release hormones directly into her bloodstream. And that lets them do things like raise her blood pressure, so they're getting even more blood flow, or stop her from processing glucose properly so that they can have access to more of the good stuff. Obviously, the mother's body tries to resist this invasion. She clearly wants the baby to get everything it needs, but she doesn't want to turn into a buffet, because these manipulations by the fetus can be really dangerous for her. If the fetus gets too much control over her blood pressure, for example, she can end up with preeclampsia, which can be fatal. Or if the fetus messes too much with her ability to produce glucose, then she can wind up with gestational diabetes. So over time, women's bodies have developed resistance to these hormones, just to keep bub in check a bit. But sure enough, as soon as we evolved some resistance, fetuses began to up the dose of these hormones. 
and we can see the evidence of this conflict, this back and forth tug of war in the bodies of pregnant women, where fetuses sometimes release hormones in absolutely huge doses. These are really potent chemicals. Usually you don't need much of a hormone to get a big reaction from the body. But due to the resistance that women have built up to these particular pregnancy-related hormones, babies need to pump mum with really big doses to see any result. And some of these hormones, like human placental lactogen, can be released into the bloodstream at a dose of about a gram a day, which is absolutely huge, and yet they have relatively minor effects due to the resistance that women have built up. This battle between mum and dad gets even more complicated because at some point in our evolutionary history, parents evolved ways to start controlling the growth of a fetus by fiddling with the way its genes are expressed. So a gene that helps fetuses grow quickly might be switched on if it's inherited from dad and switched off if it's inherited from mum. This is called genomic imprinting. When geneticists first discovered imprinted genes, they didn't really know what to make of them. No one could really think of a good reason why some genes should be turned on or off depending on the sex of the parent they're being inherited from. That was until the 90s when an evolutionary biologist called David Haig came along. And Haig had been studying these conflicts of interest between partners and between parents and offspring. And he put forward the idea that these genes were being switched on or off in an epic battle between the parents over how much energy to invest in the baby. Now, when imprinted genes first evolved, it probably went something like this. One parent figured out a way to get what they wanted by changing the genetics of their offspring. But because that genetic change came at a cost to the other parent, over time that parent evolved a way to silence the gene to prevent any cost to their own fitness. Now, the best known example of genomic imprinting is the insulin-like growth factor 2 gene. That's a bit of a mouthful. Insulin-like growth factor 2 is responsible for helping fetal growth during gestation, and it's expressed in the fetus and in the placenta. But both the fetus and the placenta inherit one copy of the gene from dad and one copy from mum, and only the copy that's inherited from dad gets switched on. The one that's inherited from mum gets silenced. Since these genes are so powerful and have such important consequences, we find that these genetic systems are really delicately balanced. The whole situation is really tense, and you can kind of think of it like the final scene in Reservoir Dogs, where everyone has a gun pointed at everyone else's head. If anything goes wrong in the system, there can be really important downstream effects for mother and baby. For example, scientists have done experiments in mice where they mess with the expression of insulin-like growth factor 2. And when they delete the copy of this gene that's inherited from the father, so this gene isn't expressed at all, you find that the mouse pups really struggle to grow and are quite sick. On the other hand, if the dad's copy of the gene gets too much control over the mum's body, then the pups grow really, really quickly, but the mum gets quite sick. Now, imprinted genes have been implicated in a bunch of diseases in humans, including Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome, which is a genetic disorder where fetuses grow really, really quickly. And once they're born, they also continue to grow really quickly as a baby. Because they're growing so fast, they can end up with very serious complications in their organs and sometimes grow tumours. These babies also suckle really intensely and have enlarged mouths and tongues to help them drink milk at a really, really fast rate. Now, Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome is really costly for mothers and has been linked to pregnancy-induced hypertension and also gestational diabetes. 
So this is an example where the balance of power is out of control and both mother and baby suffer. Thanks for listening to Dissecting Love. See you next time.